Joshua chapter 11, where we will read parts of two verses and then four more from chapter 11, beginning with verse 16. So Joshua took all that land, the hills and all the south country, and all their kings he took and smote them and slew them. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. And at that time came Joshua and cut off the Anakims from the mountains, from Hebron, from Deber, from Anab, and from all the mountains of Judah, and from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua destroyed them utterly with their cities. There was none of the Anakims left in the land of the children of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod there remained. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord said unto Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance unto Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. And the land rested from war. There was a packed gymnasium this morning for the 7.30 worship hour. I had thought that many of them would have gone home, but I think probably the majority of them stayed and will be leaving immediately after this, after that service is over. But our own children, our own young people are gone. Many of them are there this morning also. We've had a great weekend, and I trust that it's to the glory of God and that much good was accomplished. Very thrilling to be a part of it. I bring you greetings from that group, and I'm just going to kind of get my bearings a minute. From having spoken over there, I'll rest just a second and let you kind of get your bearings. I've been talking, really, with you lately. We've been studying on the subject of Christian maturity. And we noticed some things in the life of Joshua and drew a parallel between the life of Joshua and the development toward maturity in his life, a parallel between that and this development that should be taking place in our lives. We notice, first of all, that God gave Joshua a plan by which he could successfully conquer the land of Canaan. He gave him a promise, and he gave him a program, and he gave him a power. Promise being, wherever your foot treads, I've given it to you. And there will be no man stand before you as long as you live. The program consisted of a strict adherence to the word of God. Don't turn to the left or right, he said, but don't even let it depart out of your mouth, but meditate on it day and night. That was the program. It's amazing how it consisted of him doing it, knowing it, and not departing from it. And then thirdly, he gave him a promise of power when he said, I'm going to be with you. The Lord God will be with you wherever you go. And I spoke on this this morning there in the gymnasium and noted for them how similar that is to the great commission Jesus gave us. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. I'll be with you always, even to the end of the world. A very similar commission given to Joshua by God as is given to us by Jesus Christ. And then we noticed some things about Joshua... <coughs> 
The next thing that we noticed about him was that God told him before he was ready to go in and conquer the land, he had to take off his shoes. Because the place where he was standing was holy ground. And this simply indicating that Joshua was being called upon by God to be aware of the presence of God and to operate within the power of God. And that Joshua was not ready to go in to conquer the land of Canaan until he had become very fully aware of God's presence and very confident in God's power. And so he commissioned him. And Joshua accepted this awareness. And he accepted this power. And he conducted that campaign in the land of Canaan according to that power. Now, if you want to see the results of it, all you have to do is turn to the chapter that was just read. It's a long list of battle honors that Joshua won because of his being aware of the presence of God and operating within the power of God. Joshua took all that land. That's what verse 16 says, beginning. 17 ends by saying, and he took all their kings, and he smote them and put them to death. Verse 18 says, Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. Verse 21 says, and Joshua came at that time and wiped out the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Deber, and from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. Verse 22 says, There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Verse 23 says, So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. The struggle was over. Or was it? Well, you say, from what we read here, it seems that it was. The record says that Joshua took all that land and put the kings to death and took all their cities, and he wiped out the Anakim from the hill country and from Israel and from Judah, and there was none of the Anakim left. Joshua took the whole land... And then Joshua divided it among Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. Well, that's true. And now came peace. And don't you know they were glad of that? I don't know the exact number of years. We've studied in some histories that the exact number of the conquest, or the years of the conquest of Israel, was 51 years. Now, I don't know whether you can come to a definite figure or not, but if it was a 51-year war... It is something similar to what the last war that we have been involved in and the people there have been in that war for some 25 or more years. Isn't that right, Brother Bale, that the war in Vietnam has stretched for 25 years, a whole generation practically. If the Joshua War and the conquest of Canaan lasted according to this statement of 51 years, you can think how tired these people must have been of war. You know, it doesn't take people long to get tired of war and conflict and struggle. It doesn't take you long to get tired of arguments in your family. You know, I get sick way up to here real quick of arguing and bickering in the family. And I don't like it. I like to get rest and peace. I know these people were anxious for rest and peace. They were tired of struggling. Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, these three tribes, had not even been able to settle in at all. They had had to leave their families, their wives and children... They had left their flocks and all across the Jordan River where it was 
their allotment, and it seemed as though they made themselves and God's requirement, and Joshua said, now you're going to have to help us fight this war. And it seems that they were on constant call. They were always on active duty. And perhaps they went back home for maybe a three-month rest or whatever. I don't know. It doesn't say. But it does say that they could not go back and permanently settle until they had already conquered all the land of Canaan. So I know that Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh, I know they were tired of fighting. They wanted to go home. But you know, if this was peace, and it says here, and the land had rest from war, that's a beautiful statement. But if it was peace, it was just a temporary peace, a temporary lull before the storm. You know why? Well, there's something that I left unread. I omitted the second part of verse 22. Verse 22 says, There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. But the latter part of verse 22 says, Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. Only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod did some remain. I don't even like to read it. I prefer, really, that it were not even in there. But I have no choice. This is history. The Bible being true to life, and then I'll be true to the Bible, I'll have to read it, and we'll have to reckon with it. These three cities, Joshua did not deal with. Gaza, he left standing. Gath, he left standing. Ashdod, he left standing. These three cities constitute the only blot on an otherwise perfect page of performance. Only in Gaza and Gath and Ashdod did some remain. I wonder why. I wonder why he didn't just go on down and take these other cities also. It doesn't say why. And I don't know why. Maybe they were tired of war. Maybe these cities were insignificant. But whatever was the cause of their not taking these and bringing them into submission or killing these men as they were told to do by their God, whatever may be the cause... I know what the result was. The result was a catastrophe. The result was a long history of problems and terrible trials, of shame, of degradation, of dishonor, both to the people of Israel and to the God of Israel. Because these cities became the seedbeds of the future sorrow and the future defeat and the seedbeds of that which even exists until this present hour and is etched indelibly on the pages of human history for everyone I was to sit and look at. The only thing that I can come up with is this. These stand as constant reminders that Joshua's obedience to God was incomplete. He did not go all the way. There were some strongholds that he did not deal with. Perhaps they were insignificant. Perhaps it did not seem to Joshua to be necessary to wipe out these people. He had been wiping out people for years and years. He was tired, perhaps. I don't know what it was, but nevertheless, he did not deal with these people. And the sad part about it is this. 
all of the sin and all of the corruption and all of the shame and all of the dishonor that was brought upon Israel and God in the years that followed, all of this was totally unnecessary had Joshua only done what God told him to do. Had his obedience been complete, none of this would have happened. It would have all been something that would have never been heard of had it only been such that Joshua had been complete in his, in his obedience. There's a statement that appears on the wall or up over the door of, a, of one of the university buildings of the state university. I'm not sure where it is. But it simply says this, On the plains of hesitation lie the blackened bones of those who on the verge of victory sat down to rest and resting died. That's something of what happened here. The first one of these three cities, the city of Gaza, did anything bad come out of Gaza? Oh, yes. You'd have to put it in the present tense. Something bad is still coming out of Gaza as far as the Jews are concerned. The Gaza Strip is today that little strip of Mediterranean land bordering the Mediterranean, connecting Israel and Egypt practically. The Gaza Strip, you've heard about it for years. We were traveling in Israel in 1970. We came toward the close of the day trying to get out of the desert by the Dead Sea. Came up through part of that country near Beersheba. And all of a sudden it struck me and somebody told me. They'd stopped and said, you better get out of here. You're near the Gaza Strip. And they said, you better not be in here after the sundown. I'll tell you what, I stuck my foot in the carburetor. And I burned up those roads and I got out of there because I was near the Gaza Strip. Gaza Strip has to this very day, 3,000 years later, remained a thorn in the side of the Israelite people. But what happened back there that was such a source of dishonor? Gaza is the scene of the great downfall of the man Samson. Samson was one of the rulers of the Jews. He was one of their judges. He was one of the men that are referred to as a Nazarite. A Nazarite was a man who, by the very nature of the, of the term and of the office or the vow, was a person who was dedicated to God, wholly dedicated to God. This man, even from his mother's womb, was dedicated to God. Three things were upon him as a vow. He could not drink anything that was of the fruit of the vine, no grape juice. He couldn't even eat raisins. He could not shave the hair or shave his head or cut his hair off of his head. And he was not to go near the body of a dead person or a corpse, of any kind of a corpse. In the book of Judges, chapter 14, 15, and 16, you find how that each one of these three vows that a Nazarite should be keeping were gradually, each one of them, dropped in Samson's life. For one thing, he went to a body that was dead and scooped out of that body some honey and went on his way eating it and went home and told his mother and daddy about it. But he didn't tell them where he'd gotten it. He just said, here's some honey. They took it and they ate it too. A second thing... <coughs> was that it says in chapter 14, verse 10, that he gave a wedding feast like the other men of the country always gave, a customary wedding feast. Not always involved drinking of wine. Whether he drank wine there, I don't know, but it says he gave a wedding feast. He was getting awfully close to it if he didn't. And the third thing that happens in chapter 16 of Judges, it says that Samson went down to Gaza and went into the house of a prostitute. And then later on it says he fell in love and he was in love or made love to another woman whose name was Delilah. And you know the story. 
about Samson and Delilah. She was a Philistine, and she plied her art, and she wove that man and wound him around her little finger and whined and bickered and pled and carried on and cajoled and wooed until she had stripped this Nazarite of every last vestige of his devotion to God. Finally, out of sheer weakness of character, Samson, after she pled with him and pouted and carried on, he said, finally, all right, if you'll take the hair off my head and cut it, then I'll lose my strength. So she sensed that he was telling her his whole heart, it says. And so she called the Philistine people and said, this is it. Get your armies, get your men and come down. He's going to be mine. And she made him go to sleep on her lap. Sweet, isn't it? Isn't that tender and touching? He went to sleep and she called for the barber. And he came and cut off his hair. And he had the strength of the Lord shorn from him while he lay in the lap of a whore. And that's what Delilah was. You know why I know? That's the kind of a man Samson had come to be. Get up, Samson, the Philistines are on you. He said, I'll just stand up and I'll flex my muscles and I'll break these things like I've always done. He says he didn't know that the Lord had left him. And they took him down to Gaza. Took him down to Gaza. Put out his eyes. Gouged them out, it says. And chained him. And made him work at the mill. Gaza is the story of a strong man who could overcome every enemy that he had except one. His own lust. He couldn't conquer his own lusts. And Gaza will go down in history as being that city that represents the overcoming of a strong man of God. But the sad thing about it is it need never have happened had Joshua been complete in his obedience to the commission of God. The second city unconquered was the city of Gath. Did anything evil come out of the city of Gath? Will you judge for yourself? In the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17, there we see the children of Israel arrayed along the side of this mountain. Here was this valley in between. We look at the children of Israel and try to get some kind of a sense of what their frame of mind was. And you look and you're startled. They are literally scared out of their wits. And you think, well, what in the world could be the problem? They're hiding over there in the holes and they're looking and they're afraid and they're trembling. And the description of it in 1 Samuel 17 says they were literally trembling. And you look across the valley and you look on the other side of another mountain. And there is the army of the Philistines brought up in great array. But that's what was scaring them. Strolling up and down in front of the armies of the Philistines, venturing out halfway, say, into this valley, there was a nine and a half foot giant with a spear, the head of which was like a weaver's beam, nine and a half feet tall, standing there, strolling up and down in front of the armies of Israel, cursing them, calling them dogs, cursing their God, dragging the name of Jehovah through the dust, laughing, and spewing out his uncircumcised venom of a heathen that didn't know God and couldn't care less about him 
And there were the people of God over there trembling and watching this man Goliath curse God and drag the honor of Jehovah through the dust. Goliath was from Gath. Goliath was from Gath. Had Joshua done his job, Goliath never would have been alive. But Joshua's incomplete obedience paved the way for this man, Goliath, to trample underfoot the name of God. Oh, would you say David finally killed him? Yes, he did. But not until Goliath had made a spectacle of himself in destroying the confidence of the children of Israel and bringing God's name into the dust. But it need never have happened, you see, except for incomplete obedience. Well, the third city is the city of Ashdod. Both Gaza and Ashdod still exist today. And this third city plays a long and very significant role in the history of the children of Israel. First of all, during one of the later battles over in 1 Samuel, the Ark of Jehovah was captured by the Philistines and taken down to Ashdod and was put up there in the temple of Dagon next to the god Dagon. And the Ark of the Covenant was wheeled in there and set up there beside this Philistine heathen god. And all the Philistines had the best time over it. They have, they just rejoiced and they had feasts and they, they just had a bad parade and everybody was jumping up and cheering and saying the god Dagon, our god, has overcome the god of the Israelites. There's a long story about that. But that's one of the first things that happened of Ashdod as they heaped this reproach upon the name of Jehovah. Later on in Nehemiah, Ashdodites plotted with some of these other men, the rulers and the leaders of the enemies of the Jews. And it says that the Ashdodites were also in this plot to go up against Nehemiah and destroy the city walls. They were beginning to see that these people were filling in the breaches and they didn't want it filled in. And it made them angry and they made plans to go up and destroy it. They were defeated in those plans. They didn't succeed. But I'll tell you what they did succeed in. It's a lot worse. It also says in the 13th chapter of Nehemiah, verses 23 and 24, that the children of Israel began to marry some of the people from Ashdod. Listen. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon and Moab, and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, the language of Ashdod. They could not overcome the Jews by sword. You know how they got to them? They got to them by corrupting their homes. They got to them initially by getting these Jews to marry foreigners. And they got into them that way and corrupted the families of the Hebrew people. Ashdod. None of this should have happened had Joshua been complete in his obedience. Now look, the application is so plain I'm almost ashamed to mention it to you. You see the application. How many of you and myself, how many of us have been involved, we've been given a promise, a plan, a program, a power. We each one have taken off our shoes and we've stood in the presence of God. We've been immersed into Christ. 
we've surrendered ourselves to his will, and then we stand up ready to complete this routing of the enemies of God in our lives. And we go down to all these major posts, these visible things, you know, in our lives, the things that are so public that you know you've just got to cut them out, and we route all these enemies out of our lives. We take care of the anacom, and we get rid of the strongholds, and we get rid of whatever activities we're involved in that it's so obvious that any fool could see that they're contrary to God. And we get all this cleaned out. And there's not anything like that left in all of our lives. Every facet of our lives have been cleaned out, and none of the anacom remains. Except in Gaza and in Gath and in Ashdod. Because unless I miss my guess, in my life and in yours, there are these places that perhaps you think are insignificant, but which will one day spell your downfall unless they are dealt with according to what God has commanded you to do. I see it in my life. I've been brought up sharply these last two weeks. In preparing it week before last, I was made aware of the fact that there are areas in my life that I don't really want to deal with. I'm tired of struggling. I wish it were over. I don't want to struggle anymore. I would like some rest and some peace. And I think I've let these little places, well, I'll just won't, I won't deal with them. I'll just let them alone. So we compromise. But let me tell you, herein lies your downfall. It's not those public things. Obviously, most of us have learned how to deal with those. But it's those thoughts in the quiet of our lives and in the inner recesses of our soul, these last vestiges of our own personal will, where we say this is marked private and, Lord, you stay out of here. This is not for you. I'm not going to surrender this place. Whether it be a Samson place, where we can conquer everything but our own lusts. And you go in in the middle of the night, you know, to some prostitute's parlor, not maybe literally. You don't have to do it literally. I suspect you've cut that out. But in your mind, a spot check was run just this past week over in the one of the boys' dorms. And a stack of Playboy magazines this high was found in the dorm rooms. There was none of the Anakim left except in Gaza and in Gath and in Ashdod. Maybe you're like one of those Samsons. Maybe you are a strong man, but I'll tell you one thing. You feed on that very long and you won't be strong. I can tell you about a Harding graduate, a man and his wife, in my acquaintance within the last three or four years. And the boy was overcome by pornography. His marriage was destroyed because of the fact that he was incapacitated to function as a normal human being because he'd been eaten up with this thing of pornography. He didn't plan it like that. He thought it was insignificant. But he's grinding right now at the mill of the devil and of the world with his eyes poked out can't see it anymore. It's destroyed and it's eaten him up. And the sad part about it is it need never have happened had he just settled that while he was still in the formative years of his life. You better tear those things up, men. They'll eat you alive. Oh, you say, I can handle it. No, you can't either. No, you can't. 
you're going to become like what you look at. Or maybe you're a person like someone allowing this man from Gath to live. And by your life, you let someone go around cursing the name of God. And because of what you should have done and didn't, some big, strong, strapping nine-and-a-half-foot giant walks up and down in front of the people of God cursing and swearing. Maybe that's the way you've left your commission incompleted. Or maybe you like the men from Ashdod and the people from Ashdod. Maybe it is that you're being gotten to because of the fact that you're preparing to marry somebody that's not even a Christian. Oh, you say, don't get off on that. Yes, I will. I've seen enough of it that I'm sick at my stomach over it. I've seen children being taken advantage of because their mother married some man that was not a Christian. They were later born to that union and they didn't know who to follow. And the children of God married the people of Ashdod and finally the children grow up speaking the, la the language of Ashdod and they're lost. And Satan has corrupted your home and as a result he's corrupted your life. There's no more important area in your life than to make sure that you as a Christian marry Christian people. And I'll tell you what, if you don't, it'll be your undoing. Well, the sad thing is that these things need never have happened had Joshua just been complete in his obedience. None of the Anakim remained in all the land of Israel except in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. Now let me tell you an interesting footnote to this story. Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod are three cities that form somewhat of a triangle, two of them right near the Mediterranean Sea, one of them back inland just a wee bit, but they form this triangle, they are stretched out over, do you know what these three cities constitute? This is the land, or this was the ancient land of Philistia. These three cities were the land of that people who later became the arch enemies of the Hebrew people. Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod, the Philistines. Now listen, but Brother Bales, stop me if this isn't right. The Bar Koba Rebellion was in 125. Is that right? Or approximately? All right. The rebellion in the early part of the second century, where the Jewish people were again put down. There was one rebellion, of course, in AD 70. They were destroyed and expelled. In 125, they were put down again and were publicly and officially expelled from the country which God had given them under Joshua. And do you know what it was that the Roman emperors named the land instead of the land of Canaan and the land of Israel and Judah? You know what it was he chose to name it? He named it in honor of the people of Gaza, of Gath, and of Ashdod. He named it the land of Palestine, the land of the Philistines. What about that? I will, I'm just shocked that such reproach was brought upon the Israelite people. And it continues to this present day. People still talk about the land of Palestine. Incomplete obedience. Now, what is there in your life? And I want you to check yourself out. And there's a statement in 2 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, in verse 4 and 5, that I want you to make as the theme of your life from now on. And I'm making it the theme of mine. And this past week I asked a group of girls who live in one of the dormitories. My wife and I had dinner with them the other night. And they had on their wall these flannel signs 
scripture verses written out. And I asked them the other two or three days ago, I said, would you make me a scripture sign for my office? And this young lady said, yes, I will. And I said, I want you to make it this one, please. And I read her 2 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, in verse 5. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. Every thought. Let there be no Anakim in Gaza, Gath, or Ashdod in my life. Or in yours. Take every thought captive to obey Jesus Christ. Can you do that? I think you can. If you don't, when the time comes that you go down in defeat, when you find that your lusts overcome you, or when someone has invaded your home and you have been drawn away to marry someone who's not a Christian and your whole influence for God has been wiped out when generations later look back and say, what was it that was his downfall? They'll point to some part of your life, a Gaza or a Gath or an Ashdod, and say, well, it was here that he made his mistake. He did not conquer every part of his life and surrender to the Lord. Where are you today? What is it that exists in your life today that's not surrendered? You better take care of it. The older you get, the harder it becomes. Will you surrender to, to Him today? I'm going to ask that we sing the song, All to Jesus I Surrender. Jim, let's, that's number nine, I believe. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. And I'm asking that you stand with me today. I'm standing myself. And I want to bring myself under the total lordship of Jesus Christ today. I don't want there to be any Gaths or Gazas or Ashgods in my life. I want to bring every thought into total submission to Jesus Christ to obey Him. And I'm going to sing this song this morning as a commitment of myself to this one thing, the total lordship of Jesus Christ. Will you take that same stand? And may you indicate it as you stand and you personally sing this song while we encourage you. Let us stand.